what are you seeing right now in literally every hospital in every American city every hour? You are seeing a Muslim physician working with the Jewish anesthesiologist and a Baptist nurse risking themselves to intubate a Baha'i patient in a hospital room that has been cleaned and sterilized by, let's say, a Baptist custodian where there's a respiratory therapist who is culturally Hindu at a hospital that was started by a Catholic religious order where chaplains who are Jains and Zoroastrians and atheists, but who have been trained at mainline Protestant seminaries are doing their best to give comfort to people. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. On February 3rd, 1943, the USAT Dorchester carrying 902 servicemen, merchant seamen, and civilian workers was sunk in the cold Atlantic. Among those lost were four army chaplains, whose rescue efforts became the foundation of post-war interfaith activism. Our guest today is Ibu Patel, founder and president of the Interfaith Youth Corps. He sees the beginnings of a new interfaith understanding coming with the trauma and international struggle against the novel coronavirus. Religion News Service Editor-in-Chief Bob Smetana spoke with Ibu for Beliefs. I'm Bob Smetana. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Religion News Service, and I'll be talking today with Ibu Patel, President of the Interfaith Youth Corps. How are you doing, Ibu? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for being the editor of, uh, of a publication that I get daily in my email and that I read pretty religiously. Well, I'm glad you do that. So, Ibu, I'm going to have you talk a little bit just about yourself and the work you do, and then we're going to talk about the, the four immortal chaplains. So, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into this work. Sure. So uh, I am an American Muslim. I was born in Mumbai. I am part of the Ismaili Tariqa in Islam. Uh, I'm the founder and president of an organization called Interfaith Youth Corps, or IFYC. Our vision is of an interfaith America, which is to say of an America that recognizes and celebrates its religious diversity from atheist to Zoroastrian, that respects its, those various identities that uh, nurtures positive relationships between those communities and that uh, harnesses that energy towards a better common good. Uh, we work principally on college campuses and with young people. Our idea is that campuses can be laboratories of interfaith cooperation and launching pads for interfaith leaders. And we actually think that right now is a moment as challenging and, and trying as it is where the nation is uh, seeing the reality of interfaith America play out, particularly amongst first responders, and that now is the time that the story can catch up with the reality. And, and this is not the first time that uh, kind of a crisis has led to more interfaith cooperation. When did you first become aware of the four immortal chaplains, as they're called? Yeah, so uh, in a great book called Tri-Faith America by a historian named Kevin Schultz, who's at the University of Illinois at Chicago, he writes a book about how America kind of changes its self-image from a Protestant nation to a Judeo-Christian nation. And, you know, if you grow up in the 80s and 90s, as I did, and you hear the word Judeo-Christian 
so often, you kind of think that it was etched in Plymouth Rock when the pilgrims arrived, you know, that it was just kind of uh, uh, dropped from the sky or, or something that, that the pioneers found. It was just always a part of America, so to speak. But the truth is, it was created. It was invented. And it was largely invented between about 1929 and 1950. And World War II plays a big role in that, the crisis of World War II. And so does actually the crisis of anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism in the 1920s. But I think that that's part of the power of this history, is that we all grow up in the reality that somebody else created and forget that it was actually a created reality, not one that dropped from the sky. So let's talk about these four chaplains. So there's four chaplains from the USS Dorchester. So Father John Washington, Catholic priest, uh, Reverend Clark Poling, who's a Dutch Reform minister, Reverend George Fox, who's a Methodist minister, and Rabbi Alexander Good. So uh, how did we come to know these folks? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people come to know them, actually, Bob, through your writing about them. You wrote a great article about these guys, so thank you for that. Uh, The way Americans of a different generation come to know them is they are the chaplains aboard a U.S. naval vessel called the USS Dorchester, which in February of 1943 gets hit by a Nazi U-boat and begins to sink. And because of the chaos on board, a lot of the sailors don't bring their life jackets up from the quarters in which they're staying. And there's all this, you know, water and shouting and darkness on deck. And these four chaplains maintain their heads and start handing out the remaining life jackets to sailors, and they quickly run out. And so they remove the life jackets that are around their own necks, and they hand them to four more sailors. And people say that the last image of these four men is them having linked arms, and, and they're whispering their last rites, the, the final words of, of prayer before they go down with the ship. And these sailors testified to just how powerful that was, that these four men from different religious orientations, right? A Catholic, a Jew, an evangelical Christian in Reverend Poling, and then, and then a mainline Protestant Christian. It's just how powerful this, you know, in the words of the NCCJ, this brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God was. And it becomes kind of an immediate sensation. But after the war, um, uh, a number of forces continue to lift up this story. So the, the government gives them posthumous medals, names a postage stamp after them. The postage stamp's caption reads, Interfaith in Action, which I think is a powerful thing, right? Warner Brothers makes a movie called Four Men of God, and this kind of symbolizes this emerging story of the Judeo-Christian ideal. In some ways, it kind of puts that story over the top. Uh, and, And we should recognize that the NCCJ has actually been pushing this for 12 or 15 years. The NCCJ emerges not long after the defeat of Al Smith as uh, the first Catholic candidate to be a major party candidate nominee for the presidency of the United States in 1928. And, and his candidacy is effectively torpedoed by, um, by anti-Catholic forces. People say things like, you know, uh, um, Al Smith, if he wins, is going to send a one-word telegram to, to the Vatican, unpack. You know, he's going to be the kind of Trojan horse for popery, so to speak. And it sounds hilarious now in 2020, but back in 1929, 
this was kind of standard, ugly, bigoted fare amongst a not insignificant segment of the American population. So, so the NCCJ emerges to fight anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic bigotry, principally after the Al Smith debacle. And they've been working for a dozen years, sending priests and pastors and rabbis to communities and colleges and military bases around the country. Uh, they articulate a tri-faith ideal. They talk about it as Judeo-Christian. They literally invent the term and they are very, very strategic about how to position the story of the four chaplains when it occurs. So let's talk a little bit about this moment now, because, you know, one of the things that made this, the four chaplains so powerful is they were these four folks and they had this singular incident and they had these stories and, you know, it was was easy to there there you know there are many stories about people going down but for some reason this one story about these men really connected let's talk about where we are today because i think you have an idea that this moment could be something like that for the future right so since the time of the four chaplains we have had uh the immigration and naturalization act of 1965 which brought people from all over the world to the united states before that the united states had a pretty racist immigration policy which largely only let in europeans in 1965 that all changes and families from everywhere start to come to america including families like mine from uh ismaili muslims from india and that has so dramatically shifted the demographic landscape of America that we have become, as Diana Eck of Harvard likes to say, the most religiously diverse nation probably in human history, the most religiously devout nation in the Western Hemisphere. So that's unbelievable, right? That there are you know more Muslims in America, about 4 million, and more Buddhists in America, also about 4 million, than there are Episcopalians, which is closer to 2 million. And there are, you know, as many Muslims and Buddhists as there are ELCA Lutherans. And by the way, uh, the median age of Muslims is a lot younger, which means that in not too long, there's going to be a, a lot more, right? Um, uh, this is all to say America has changed drastically, right? And, and one of the ways we see that is with racist movements, the xenophobic movements. If there aren't Muslims around, there's nobody for Islamophobes to point to. But as the population of these minority faiths start to grow, you start to see racist movements grow also. But what are you seeing right now in literally every hospital, in every American city, every hour, you are seeing a Muslim physician working with the Jewish anesthesiologist and a Baptist nurse risking themselves to intubate a Baha'i patient in a hospital room that has been cleaned and sterilized by let's say a Baptist custodian where there's a respiratory therapist who is culturally Hindu at a hospital that was started by a Catholic religious order where chaplains who are Jains and Zoroastrians and atheists, but who have been trained at mainline Protestant seminaries are doing their best to give comfort to people. So in other words, every American hospital right now is filled with the chaplains of the Dorchester. They're from atheist to Zoroastrian. They are cooperating together as a brotherhood and sisterhood of men and women medical professionals under what I believe is a good and great God to help others. And we're all witnessing this, right? 
we're all witnessing this. In fact, some of us in, in cities are cheering for them uh, as a nightly ritual. This is the reality of American hospitals, by the way, every day. Right now, it's more dramatic and more sacrificial than, than normal. Uh, but, but just as there were plenty of Jews and Catholics in America in 1943, you know, uh, it just took a set of symbolic incidents for us, for the story to catch up with the reality. I think that this is one of those moments when the story catches up with the reality and we kind of write a new chapter in the great history of American religion that Judeo-Christian did good work for 80 years. You know, some people like to be dismissive of it. I, you know, respond by saying to them, would you rather have been Jewish in 1980 or in 1930? Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the story Judeo-Christian did its work over the course of the last 80 years it was a chapter in the glorious tale of American religion. It's time to write the next chapter. And that chapter, we think, is called Interfaith America. And it sounds like you have kind of a new website for that or a new project on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I wrote a book uh, about 18 months ago called um, out, of, out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity and the American Promise. And it's, it's uh, you know, kind of tells this story this story. Uh, and at IFYC, you know, because I lead this organization that, that does work with college campuses and runs programs and trains leaders, uh, one of the things we have launched really quickly is this platform called Interfaith America. It's been organized by my friend and colleague, Paul Rauschenbusch, who many of you will know because he helped to launch BeliefNet and helped to launch HuffPost Religion. And it tells the stories of people from a range of religious traditions, from college presidents to frontline healthcare workers, about how they are cooperating with people across faiths to serve others in this moment. And we think that, that this is the right launch point, but, but just like Judeo-Christian lasts a lot longer than the Four Chaplains moment, we believe this is an umbrella term that is going to last a long, long time. So you're on the north side of Chicago. Uh, if I remember, not too far from Swedish Covenant Hospital, which is a neighborhood hospital started by Swedish Protestants. And now it's become, you know, this uh, kind of multi-faith, uh, still nonprofit, still the same mission, but the people who run it and the people they serve are completely different. And it endured, but that kind of mission has endured. And it uh, also shows the kind of changing demographics of the country because of immigration and all sorts of other things, and but that the uh, mission was already happening. This kind of interfaith America was happening before. And now we're seeing it in a. And Bob, that's virtually every hospital in America, right? At least, at least hospitals in cities and suburbs, but also like VA hospitals, right? In rural America, an awful lot of the medical professionals there are Hindus, Jains, Sikhs, Muslims. Uh, you know, our hospitals, and I've long said this, our hospitals are the best and most inspiring example of interfaith cooperation in the world. We just haven't fr kind of framed them as such. And it's in a dramatic moment like this when we, when we can look at them through that lens. Well, thank you for taking time to talk with me about this. This is fascinating. And where can folks get, uh, read more about Interfaith America? 
So go to ifyc.org backslash Interfaith America. You can see it there. You can see there's lots and lots of great stuff on there. It's going to be super dynamic. We've got a great community of people who are contributing. And, and what they're doing is they're telling the stories of their own interfaith leadership as college presidents, as college students, as faculty, as chaplains, as alum of IFYC. So uh, I hope you read it. I hope you're inspired. And I hope you tell us your story. Thanks for talking to us. It's great to, great to catch up with you again. Thank you, friend. Our guest was Ibu Patel, founder and president of the Interfaith Youth Corps. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.